Hello, and welcome back to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Catherine Hodges-Cluck about Canterbury and its conceptual place in the English Christian landscape during the High Middle Ages. Dr. Hodges-Cluck earned her PhD from the University of Tennessee, and her article, Canterbury and Jerusalem, England and the Holy Land, circa 1150 to 1220, was published in the journal Viator in 2018. And this is an article that I assigned in my War and Society in the High Middle Ages course last semester, so I'm really excited for this conversation. So let's get to it. Well, Dr. Hodges-Cluck, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So your article is entitled Canterbury and Jerusalem, and I I think most of us have a good sense of where Jerusalem is and and why it's important. But Canterbury is a town I think that certainly most Americans really only know about because we've had to read some Chaucer in high school. So maybe let's start with some background on Canterbury, uh, the significance of Canterbury, and its place in the history of Christianity in England. I guess in short, why does Canterbury matter? So Canterbury is the center of um, Kent in southern England, and it was a royal uh, powerhouse going back um, to the early medieval period. And at the end of the 6th century, Pope Gregory the Great, Gregory I, sent a Benedictine monk named Augustine to Canterbury to try to convert the people of England to Christianity. Christianity was not unheard of in England. Um, The king of Kent was, Ethelbert was married to Bertha, who was a Frankish princess who was Christian. So Christianity was already there, but it was not widespread. So Augustine arrived in Canterbury and began to go around preaching and also to try to convince the king to convert. And so when the king did finally convert, this really was a key moment in the Christianization of England. It really kind of kicked off a domino effect of officially Christianizing kingdoms across the island of Great Britain. And eventually Augustine himself became St. Augustine of Canterbury and the first Archbishop of England. And throughout the Middle Ages, Canterbury maintained that role as the sole um, leading primacy Um, leading diocese of England. So the Archbishop of Canterbury was the head of the English church. In the 12th century, that got contested by the Archbishop of York. But even today, Canterbury still maintains that lead role in the Church of England. So it's, it's a very important place for English ecclesiastical politics and culture. So the real thrust of your article here is that prior to this period, prior to the the 12th century, Canterbury as the ecclesiastical center of England, as the the, the center of the English church, had looked to Rome as an aspirational model. But that that changes during this period, that Canterbury now starts to look to Jerusalem as an aspirational model. What do you mean here by aspirational model? Some of this has to do with internal Canterbury politics. So Canterbury, the city, had within it two main religious centers. There was the uh, St. Augustine's Monastery, which was where St. Augustine himself had originally set up, and then that had grown over the centuries. And then across town was Christ Church Priory and Cathedral. 
So you have these two different communities of monks living within the city, um, some at St. Augustine's, some at Christ Church. And so it's really within that context that, that my article takes place is thinking about St. Augustine's always looked to Rome because Augustine himself had been sent by the Pope and it was named after St. Augustine. So they look to Rome as kind of their, their foundational mother. Whereas Christ Church, with its name of Christ, of course, looked to Jesus as its founder and as its mentor. And so if you're thinking about Jesus, where do you look? You look to Jerusalem. And so that's really where this takes off for me, is these two different communities trying to position themselves. And within that, the context of the Crusades in the 12th century then sort of wiggles its way in and influences the story. Right. And you trace the development of this change in three phases. And and one of those is the Crusades, but it's not the first one. And so I think it's actually worth focusing on each one here. And maybe let's just start at the, the beginning. So how does this shift from focusing on Rome as an aspirational model to focusing on Jerusalem as an aspirational model get started? Where does this begin? In the second quarter of the 12th century, England was in the midst of a civil war called the Anarchy, in which King Stephen and his cousin Matilda were vying for the throne. And eventually Matilda's son, Henry, becomes Henry II. And he was the first Angevin king. So he was Count of Anjou, Duke of Normandy, um, before he became King of England. And so even though he's continuing a family dynasty that goes back to the Anglo-Norman period, the Angevin period under Henry II is really seen as this sort of turning point, ending this civil war and starting this new era for England. So Henry was crowned in December of 1154. And what we see at that time is this sort of looking at Henry as this hope for reviving this war-torn land of England. And we get clergymen, for instance, Osbert of Clare um, at Westminster, who uh, writes a letter to Henry saying, essentially, you are the new hope for England and England will be your new Jerusalem and you will rule over it and revive it and and bring it to a new greatness. At the same time as Henry II's cousins were ruling the kingdom of Jerusalem in the Near East itself. So Osbert really placed Henry in this context of his family ruling Jerusalem and England being a new Jerusalem. And so for Henry, Canterbury is, of course, the key focus of his church within his kingdom. And these ideas get spread within that. Beyond that, there's also a sense within Canterbury itself of trying to, and especially with Christ Church Priory and Cathedral, of trying to sort of articulate its own position within this new dynasty in England and what its role will be in the political religious landscape of the kingdom. How do the monks in Canterbury then advertise this new relationship that they have with the king or, or, or new position maybe that they think they have in the kingdom? How are they telling people about this and, and what are they telling them? So one of the things you see, um, you see this movement, especially under Prior Wybert or Wiebert, who was um, prior during the 1150s and 60s. And he really pushed this agenda of sort of rebranding Canterbury and rebranding Christchurch. So he, it was under him that 
uh, Christchurch issued a new seal. And the seal shows a front picture of the cathedral with Jesus sitting in the middle of it, presiding over the cathedral in physical form. And it was also under Webert that you get the production of the Eodwin uh, Psalter, which um, I talk about in my article, which really highlights this idea. It, it's copying old manuscript styles, but it's also bringing in something new and kind of positioning Canterbury in a new way by putting a map of Canterbury itself, of, of the priory, within the back of the manuscript and physically representing Christ's church as this sort of parallel to Jerusalem physically and geographically. So what you see is essentially, uh, so the last, the last leaves of the manuscript have a full spread map, uh, plan view uh, of the priory and of the pipe system that Prior Webert built. So one of the things that the prior did was he built this whole new system of pipes to direct water, hot water, cold water, waste water in and out of the priory. And these, this pipe system is represented in this plan view map at the back of the Eodwin Psalter, which was made probably in the late 1150s. So you have a plan view of, of the priory, and then within it, you have all of these little pipes running in and out of the walls across the center of the priory. And what I looked at when I looked at this was Peter Ferguson has, has already sort of likened this to Jerusalem in his work on looking at the priory. But I, I started to look at it and think, this looks an awful lot like contemporary map of Jerusalem itself that that is currently in Cambrai or at the Mediatheque de Cambrai in France. And essentially that that map that's in France has a square plan view of Jerusalem with the streets that run in and out of the city looking an awful lot like the pipe system of the uh, cathedral and priory at Christchurch Canterbury. So I really wanted to start thinking about what does that mean for the community in England and at Christchurch to, to represent itself in this way. And so it sounds like in this Psalter, the Adwine Psalter, that there's a real pictorial equivalency here comparing Canterbury with Jerusalem. How would people read that? How would people uh, understand the, the parallel between those two images? Yeah, so there's, there's obviously no smoking gun. No one wrote down this picture represents Jerusalem. But if you start to look at the layout, you can see the, the, the priory plan is labeled with the north, south, east, and west cardinal directions. And if you orient that to the same way as a map, the contemporary map at Cambrai from 1170 of Jerusalem, you see that there are a lot of parallels in the layout of the of the city slash the priory itself, and then of the Dead Sea in relation to the uh, fish pond that it was at Canterbury. So the, the basically the pond takes up the place of the Dead Sea in this imagination. So what this would have represented was a sort of spiritual meditation for the monks who were looking at this uh, Psalter. So someone could sit down with this map of Christchurch Priory and 
meditate upon its parallels to Jerusalem. Think about how the text within it, the religious text that was contained within the Psalter, connected to, to the holy texts and to the idea of the heavenly Jerusalem and kind of go on this spiritual journey of visiting Jerusalem themselves through thinking about their role in this physical overlap that they could see through the page. And the images in this Psalter are absolutely beautiful. This is a really just gorgeous medieval manuscript. And were you able to examine the manuscript? Is that how you, you saw the, the map and were able to make these comparisons? Um, I unfortunately have not seen it in person. I would love to. I actually, when I was first working on this article, I was struggling to find a direction with it because I really wanted it to be about Thomas Beckett. And large portions of it are. But the story that was there in the sources was not fitting what I was trying to do with it. And luckily for me, I met uh, Alexandra Ryder, who at the time was a graduate student who came to the University of Tennessee to give a presentation as part of the manuscript workshop at the Marco Institute for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. And she was talking about the waterworks in this drawing of the Priory. And so she and I were talking and she told me about this image at the back of the manuscript. And I started looking at that more and then um, read Peter Ferguson's work about that image. And from there, it, it all kind of fell into place that what I was really thinking about was not the story of Thomas Beckett. It was the story of Canterbury and its relationship to the Holy Land. And, and that really was embodied within this manuscript. Though, as you say, a big chunk of the article is about Thomas Beckett and it really hinges around the murder of Thomas Beckett, which, of course, is something that I think looms large in the minds of medievalists like ourselves. Also, T.S. Eliot fans, I guess. But maybe we should talk about who Thomas Beckett was and the circumstances of his murder before you show us how this affects this reshaping of Canterbury's image. So who is Thomas Beckett? Sure. So Thomas Beckett was uh, the son of an Anglo-Norman merchant who lived in London. And he grew up in London, became a clerk for uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Theodore Beck. And working for him, Beckett really worked his way up the ladder. And eventually he was appointed Chancellor of the Realm by Henry II. He uh, was good friends with Henry. And when Henry became king, he decided to make Thomas his chancellor. So initially, Thomas was actually outshining the king. We have stories of him going off in giant parades, wearing all kinds of fancy clothes and being super lavish in his lifestyle. But when Theodore died, there was need for a new archbishop and Beckett got appointed. And Henry sort of thought, oh, this will be useful to have my man as Archbishop of Canterbury. But what happened was Beckett took his role very seriously, and instead of being an ally for King Henry, he became sort of the greatest thorn in Henry's side. So this rivalry between the two of them is very famous over who had jurisdiction within England. Did the church have jurisdiction? Did the king have jurisdiction? And where were the boundaries between those two? So, for instance, could a cleric who, who committed a crime be tried by the church, or did he have to be tried in the royal courts? And this this ongoing feud really divided England and divided Beckett and Henry, who used to be best friends, and ended up in this 
long time, long lasting feud. Beckett ended up having to flee to France and lived in exile in France for a number of years. But eventually he returned to England in uh, December of 1170. And Henry at the time was in Normandy. And according to legend, at least, Henry heard some news about Beckett and uttered something along the lines of, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? We don't know if he actually ever said that for real, but this is what the, the legend says, at least. And in response to that, four of Henry's knights set sail from Normandy, crossed the channel, came to England, and cornered Beckett while he was at the altar at Canterbury Cathedral, confronted him, and when Thomas would not accede to them, they chopped off the top of his head right there at the altar and spilled his brains across the floor of Canterbury Cathedral. So Thomas Beckett became a martyr. Henry II was forced to perform penance for his potential role or perceived role in the death of Thomas. And the community at Canterbury really rallied around making this, making Thomas a martyr that they could use as kind of the center point of their identity as a community in Canterbury itself. So Beckett went from being this, this very worldly chancellor to now being uh, really the, considered the first saint of the uh, foremost saint of England. So even today, he is he is very much associated with English with the Church of England um, and English religiosity. And so, how does the attempt by the the monks in Canterbury and really the the whole church infrastructure in England, their effort to memorialize to commemorate Becket as a a martyr and as as a saint? How does this further the process then of linking Canterbury more with Jerusalem than with Rome? Part of the the ongoing feud that Becket had had with Henry the Second was. The, the, uh, I guess I would say the Pope uh, at the time tried to mediate between Henry II and Becket through the course of their feud. And so for Henry, Rome was always kind of this problematic element in the story that, that the Pope wanted him to reconcile with Thomas Becket and was weighing on him a lot. And of course, the Pope you know, wants to support the Archbishop of Canterbury. So there's this sort of tension already inherent with Rome in Henry's um, rule. And then on top of that, what we see is the community at Christ Church and at Canterbury more broadly was able to use Beckett as a sort of rhetorical device for building this idea of what their community meant. So um, you know, every martyr in the Middle Ages is in some way compared to Jesus. And, you know, the idea of dying for one's faith and being holy. There, so there's a certain element within these hagiographic tropes that, that you see in any kind of martyr stories. But with Thomas Beckett, there's really something different because he had been killed at the church. So there's this physical element that you get. Just So, so just as Jesus... Um, died and spilled his blood in in Jerusalem. You start to see them write these monks at Canterbury writing about Beckett spilling his blood on the floor of the church or of the cathedral at Canterbury. So they're really looking for these key 
comparisons that are very physical. Um, and they play on the, the words Christ Church in Canterbury at Christmas, trying to trying to play up why he died, when he died, what his parallels are to Jesus, seeing him as having been persecuted by Henry II in the same way that Jesus was persecuted um, before his death. And so there's a lot of parallels that they begin to draw in these saints' lives that were written right after Thomas died, trying to really place him within the context of Jesus in Jerusalem as a parallel for Canterbury. And what are some of these sources where we're seeing people do this? I mean, how many of these martyr accounts or, or saints' lives of Beckett are there? So these uh, accounts were written by contemporaries and the near contemporaries of Thomas Beckett, um, most of them who were housed at Canterbury, some of them elsewhere in England or in France. But these were men who knew Beckett personally and who, after Thomas's death, they sat down to write accounts of what they knew about him and what his relationship was to their community. So some of these people were friends of his. You get saints' lives. There's sort of several saints' lives written by, for instance, his friend Herbert of Bosham and by Gerald of Wales, by... Benedict of Peterborough is one of the most famous, uh, William of Canterbury. So there's, there's sort of this handful of men who are writing about what Beckett did in his life and then also about the miracles that he supposedly performed after his death. So between um, 1171 and 1177, we have records of 665 pilgrims coming to the cathedral at Canterbury. Um, and these are recorded in the writings of William of Canterbury and Benedict of Peterborough. So the, just the two of them together record this huge number of pilgrims coming to Canterbury to pay their respects, to beg help from the new saint, um, just within a few years of Thomas's death. Um, so we really see these, these accounts being very personal they are written by men who some of them were eyewitnesses to the death, to the, to the martyrdom. Um, others were, you know, had, had worked with Beckett for years. So, so they have very personal elements to them that they're kind of drawing on to help give them that extra authority that they're, they're seeking when they write about him. So would it be fair to say then that this event in, English politics was something that really dominated the public discourse for years afterwards, that this was something that, that really shocked people and and reshaped the way that people thought even about Canterbury it, itself. Absolutely. I would say this is not the first murder of a bishop. There had been previous bishop murders. So it wasn't unheard of, but it was quite shocking. And the whole circumstances of it with Henry II's sort of perceived role as as sending hitmen essentially to go assassinate Beckett, whether he did or not for reals, kind of spun that to an extra level. And and Thomas really St. Thomas really became this this figurehead that people could look to and they felt that he had this extra element of power. And and you see shrines, for instance, St. Fritiswide um, near Oxford that are starting to try to copy 
the miracles that Becket's said to have done um, and, and attribute them to their saint. So, so within England, there's this sort of arms race almost trying to claim that your saint is just as cool as Thomas Becket is at Canterbury. Um, and that was part of the, the sort of contest between different monastic centers within England itself was each one of them, of course, wanted to be the best center of religion in the, in the kingdom. And Thomas Becket had kind of given Canterbury a leg up and people really associated themselves with him. And Canterbury is going to win this fight. I mean, this is why the, the pilgrims are going to Canterbury in Chaucer's work, the, the Canterbury Tales. But you suggest that there's still a real third phase or a final phase that's going to cement Canterbury's place here. And this phase is really wrapped up in the Third Crusade. Can you tell us about this crusade and why the Third Crusade in particular was so important for England? So the Third Crusade officially ran from 1189 to 1192. At this period, the term crusade still didn't actually exist. Um, it was it was still this sort of amorphous idea of what crusading meant. But we have the numbered crusades. The first crusade uh, in 1199, or excuse me, 1099, the first crusaders captured Jerusalem from the Fatimid Muslims. And from that point onward... Jerusalem was in Christian hands through the uh, majority of the 12th century. So Jerusalem, when we, when we speak about Jerusalem in the 12th century, we mean Jerusalem, the city, but also Jerusalem, the kingdom of Jerusalem that was ruled by Christians. And what happened was in 1187, the Sultan of Egypt, Saladin or Saladin attacked the Christian army at uh, the Horns of Hattin, which is uh, just a little ways away from Jerusalem, and really routed the Christians. Um, he captured the king of Jerusalem, King Guy, uh, and he also captured the relic of the true cross, the cross on which Christ had, was said to have been crucified from the Christians. And so this was a major victory for Saladin and his armies, and from that point, they then marched upon Jerusalem itself and recaptured Jerusalem. So what essentially happened was when Saladin defeated uh, the, the, this combined army at Jeru near Jerusalem and then captured Jerusalem just a few months later, this, this call goes out across Europe. Um, this sort of panicked moment that the kingdom of Jerusalem has essentially fallen to the Muslims and um, what are, you know, what are Christians going to do about it? And it was said to be so shocking that the Pope died from hearing the news. Um, so this was, this was very, very shocking. Um, according to one chronicler, children who were born that year didn't have any teeth because it was such a sort of groundbreaking event. And so there's this new call for crusade. Henry II was getting very elderly. Um, he did finally um, take crusading vows, but um, the Third Crusade really was led, at least initially, by Frederick Barbarossa, who was the German emperor, and Philip II, Augustus of France, and Richard I of England. And Richard was the son of Henry II, and we, of course, know King Richard um, from stories like like Robin Hood, where he's this heroic 
uh, crusader coming home to save England from his evil brother, King John. But at the time, there was a lot of tension over, over what happens when your crown prince goes off on crusade, and especially because his father Henry died in 1189. So Richard actually became king right before he set out on crusade. He, he's basically crowned and then leaves to go to, Jeru- to try to save Jerusalem. So this is, this is sort of this tension within uh, Richard's whole reign of what, what's more important for his rule. Is England more important or is Jerusalem more important? So the whole state of England here, the whole kingdom of England then is really focused on capturing, on, on liberating Jerusalem. Uh, this seems like a real opportune moment for Canterbury to really double down on, to really emphasize its status as a new Jerusalem in England. Does this actually receive royal support or royal patronage at this time? One of the things that had happened when when Becket first died was Henry had to perform penance in public at Canterbury to show how sorry he was for what he had said that had led up to Becket's death. And from that point on, even though Henry was kind of forced into that penance. He he kind of turned it around and used it as a moment to make Canterbury his sort of special royal place to go and to kind of co-opt the the cult of Thomas Becket for himself to show that he was very contrite and sorry. And now that Becket was forgiving him and supporting him. And so that really kind of cemented Canterbury's place within the royal purview um, in England. And so Rich, or Richard, when he was getting ready to go on crusade, built upon that. And so he actually stops at Canterbury right before he departs across the channel um, to go meet up with uh, Philip Augustus of France to build an army for the crusade. So he really, Richard sees the need to go to Canterbury as a touch point to get approval from uh, prelates within England at Canterbury before he departs on this great new undertaking of the crusade. And so thinking about this all really from the, the big picture, does this shift in seeing Canterbury as a new Jerusalem rather than a new Rome, does this end up having a, a broader significance or, or important consequences outside of Canterbury itself? Yes. The crusade really was, was a moment where, um, Thomas Becket could go from representing the community at Canterbury and maybe the royal household to really representing Englishmen um, and the people of England more broadly. And this happened largely because the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time of the Third Crusade, Archbishop Baldwin, was a very ardent crusader. He went around preaching. He went on a famous preaching tour with Gerald of Wales um, through Wales, where he tried to get the Welsh to come on crusade with the English. And then he himself, even though he was elderly, Baldwin set out on the crusade. He was also accompanied by Hubert Walter, who at the time was Bishop of Salisbury. But after the crusade and after Baldwin died, uh, Hubert became the next archbishop. So essentially you have the current archbishop of Canterbury and the future archbishop of Canterbury who both set out on the third crusade together 
and they brought with them, at least according to reports, uh, the banner of Thomas Beckett and used him as kind of this rallying point for their armies um, when they arrived in the Levant um, at Acre and where there was this ongoing siege um, against the Muslim stronghold. So you get all these pilgrims who are coming across the sea who are praying to Thomas Beckett to save them from from storms at sea, from shipwrecks on their way to the Holy Land. And then when they get there, they're rallying around these men from Canterbury with Baldwin under the umbrella of Thomas Beckett. And so Beckett really comes to represent the whole English army um, rather than just people from Canterbury, that the Londoners look to, to Beckett because he's a Londoner. Um, and all these different groups within the English army uh, come together to fight in the Holy Land to try to reclaim Jerusalem under the banner of Thomas Beckett and under the leadership of the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. So one of the things that we see is that because people were fighting in the Holy Land under the banner of Beckett, um, we start to see stories of uh, crusaders who were freed, um, crusaders who were captured in the Holy Land or people from the Holy Land who were said to have been captured by Jerusalem or by Saladin. And in these, in these stories, reportedly, they were freed by the intervention of the saint and came from the Holy Land to England to pay their thanks at Canterbury. Um, so instead of, of Englishmen going to Jerusalem to pray, you now get people from the Holy Land who were supposedly freed by Thomas Beckett coming back to England to give thanks at Canterbury and really turning that uh, table around and, and shifting from Jerusalem as the center of pilgrimage to Canterbury as the center of pilgrimage. But what I find especially interesting is, is there's a story from the probably second quarter of the 12th or 13th century. The earliest version I've been able to find is from the 1250s, but I suspect it may have originated slightly earlier. And it's this apocryphal story that says that Thomas Beckett's father, Gilbert, was a crusader who went to the Holy Land and got captured by an emir somewhere in the East. Um, what's interesting about this story is Thomas Beckett's father, while he was named Gilbert, was not a crusader and never went to the Holy Land. Um, but in this story, he did. And he got captured and met the emir's daughter and spoke with her and told her about England and about uh, Christianity. And then he escaped and went back to England. And in this tale, the emir's daughter decided that she wanted to go after him. And so we get this, this story of this Muslim princess setting out only knowing the name Beckett and the name London. And she basically goes across kind of like in Lord of the Rings where Gollum is going around saying Shire Baggins. <laughs> she goes around saying Gilbert, London, Gilbert, London, and makes it from the east to London, shows up there, wanders around until she stumbles across him. Um, they then had to get dispensation from six bishops and then they got married. And from this, according to this apocryphal tale, Thomas Beckett was born. So 
this is a fascinating story from the, you know, about maybe 70, 75, 80 years after Beckett died. Um, that's imagining him as the son of a, an English crusader and a Muslim slash Saracen, as they call it in the story, princess, um, which is very, very intriguing when you think about the fact that Thomas Beckett is, you know, the, the sort of foremost English saint um, who really represents England. And so to think of him as a, as a, you know, this hybrid character who brings together the East and the West um, is, is really fascinating. And I'm very surprised that very little has been done with this story because it's an absolutely fascinating story. Right. This story sounds like it, it almost gives Beckett a, a, a biological lineage, a biological connection to Jerusalem besides just uh, a spiritual one. Absolutely. Well, Dr. hodges Cook, that was absolutely fascinating. And I just want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me about your research today. I'm so happy I could do this. And thank you so much for inviting me. All right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. And if you'd like to support the network and get us a little bit closer to making Agnes a year-round podcast, please become a patron on Patreon. And you can find us at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. I'll be back next month with another great conversation with a great scholar. But until then, awe atque wale.